1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 42 through 48.
0: Verse two, for thou art the God of my strength. Why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You know, as we... We can look at this dispensationally, but we shouldn't miss this plea that we could scream too. Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Have you ever prayed to be delivered from politicians that are deceitful and unjust? If anything characterizes our political landscape in both political parties of the disaster, that, of uh, the, the absence of leadership in this country, how, how indeed we should pray that. In any case... Psalmist continues, Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Send out thy light. Who is our light? Jesus Christ. He said, I am the light of the world. And he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In John chapter 8. And of course, John fourteen six. most of you have memorized, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man cometh father but by me. The holy hill that phrase may be familiar to you if you remember Psalm 2, that incredible psalm that appears to be a trialogue between the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost talking among themselves. And uh, in psalm, verse 6 of Psalm 2, God says, Yet I have set my king, where? Up on my holy hill of Zion. We need to remember that Jesus Christ is going to rule, but he's going to rule as a Jewish king on the throne of David from Jerusalem. That's a a view that is not widely recognized in most churches. They tend to spiritualize it. No, the the, the scripture is very explicit on that. We just got through celebrating Christmas where Gabriel promised Mary that her infant would sit on the throne of David. The throne of David is a political throne and it did not exist in the days of Christ's ministry. It has yet to be assumed. He is not on David's throne today. He's on his father's throne. But that is forthcoming. And that's what this is talking about. So we're beginning to get the flavor of it here. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Their prayers are going to be answered. And the long expected Messiah of Israel is going to return. And it's at that time that Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36 will be fulfilled. Let's take a look at Ezekiel 36, starting by verse 26. Ezekiel promises, A new heart also will I give you, God says to Ezekiel, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. And that's Ezekiel. And that's that little short Psalm 43. Let's take a look at the third of, these, of this trilogy. Psalm 44. Again, it's to the chief musician for the sons of Korah, a Mishael, an instructional psalm. And... Uh, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days and the times of old, how thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and plantest them, and how thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. That echoes, of course, the book of Exodus, Is also echoes Gideon who said, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told of us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. That's in Judges 6.13. Again, alluding to the the victories of the past, but nevertheless embodying some doubt for the present. And... uh, The psalmist here in verse 2 is echoing the same thing. How didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and plantest them? How didst thou afflict the people and cast them out? For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but by thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance because thou hast a favor unto them. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverance for Jacob. And uh, when... uh, Jacob, of course, became Israel. So Jacob is an idiom, idiom here for Israel. And uh, when, he calls, when he says, thou art my king, O God, he's talking about Israel's king. Who is Israel's king today? They don't have a king today on the earth, but who is their, who's destined to be their king? Jesus Christ, exactly. And he will, deliver to, he will come to deliver his, his uh, people. Thou art my king. The psalmist is referring to God, but he's also referring to him as my king. It's so easy to take this and just spiritualize it, idiomatically symbolize it. And yet uh, it could prove to be far more explicit than is generally recognized. Verse 5, through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name we will tread them under that rise up against us. For I will not trust in thy bow, neither shall my sword save me but thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever, Selah. Selah is that uh, some people think it's musical. Others uh, make a good argument that is actually there to connect thoughts, a pause to absorb what has just, been, just gone on. Clearly, if this is Israel, they're in deep trouble. The enemy is raging against them. And that little horn that Daniel mentions in Daniel chapter 7 says, shall wear out the saints of the Most High. That's not speaking of Christians because they're promised differently in Matthew 16. No, the gates of hell shall not prevail against and so forth. No, this this is a tribulation saint allusion there in Daniel 7. And these are Jewish saints. And the Antichrist makes war against them to overcome them. And they are warned not to fight back. They refuse the mark of the beast and they are killed in large numbers. In their their distress, they cry out to God. And that's what this really uh, suggests. Continue verse nine. But thou hast cast us off and put us to shame and goest not forth with our armies. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy and they which hate us spoil for themselves. Thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat Thou hast scattered us among the heathen. And the the, uh, like sheep, it's actually as a sheep of meat is what the Hebrew word implies. And get this verse 12. Thou sellest thy people for naught and dost not increase thy wealth by their price. Jews are being sold as slaves and eaten alive. Thou makest us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them that are around about us. Thou makest a byword among the heathen, a shaking of the head among the people. My confusion is continually before me, and the shame of my face hath covered me. For the voice of him that reproacheth and blasphemeth by reason of the enemy and avenger, all this has come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee, neither have we dealt falsely in thy covenant. Do you hear the plight of the psalmist? Things are really dark. It's as if God has forsaken them, but he knows in his heart of hearts that's not true. And yet they are in dark, dark times here. This may be indeed. Now, is this this psalm attributable to some historical context? Well, the Jews have had no armies from 70, to 1945. So that's hard to fit something in. In the tribulation, they will lose the battles against the Antichrist. Until the final climactic one, they're scattered during the church age and sold for slaves during the tribulation. That's what verse twelve deals with. And the enemy and the avenger is well identified in Daniel, excuse me, in Revelation chapter twelve, verse nine and thirteen six. Who is the dragon? The red dragon, well identified in uh, in uh, Revelation twelve nine and so on. The psalmist continues: Our heart is not turned back; neither have our steps declined from thy way. Though thou hast sore, broken us in the place of dragons and covered us with the shadow of death. Now this word dragons is a problem for many. <laughs> um, in the uh, NIV and the RSV, they change it to jackals with no justification, by the way. The word in the Hebrew is tanin in another, with, a, with a different consonant at the end, tamim. It also appears in Ezekiel. In both cases, it is regarded by the lexicographers as a dragon, a serpent, a sea monster, or a venomous snake. So yes, idiomatically, it can be for Satan or his demons, but it's a, it's a dragon in the sense, uh, it certainly isn't a jackal or, or a wolf or something like that, So, for what it's worth. And uh, so, in that day the Lord, with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish the Leviathan, the piercing servant, even the Leviathan, the crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. That's in Isaiah 27.1. Again, leaning on this definition of the dragon, if you will. Psalm 74, when we get to it, we'll talk about, For my God is my King of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by the strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of the Leviathan in pieces and giveth him meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness and so forth. Let's get back to Psalm 44. If we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Yea, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That sounds familiar to you because that is one of Paul's pleas in Romans chapter 8, verse 36. It's speaking of, 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 the, of the saints now in this case also. Yea, for thy sake we are called, killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And the psalmist continues, Awake thy Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not forever. Whenever you think the Lord is sleeping, remember Psalm 121, verse 4. We'll get to that, obviously, later on. But it's a reminder that, Behold, he that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. When I travel across the country, people say, Aren't you worried about Israel? No, I'm not at all. Because I know he that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So Israel is in the palm of his hand. I worry about America because God it's noticeably absent in mention in the eschatological passages. But that's again a, a tale for another day. Verse uh, twenty-four. Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? You know that's a, that's the old in number six, the Old Testament benediction. May his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. May he lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. This is in contrast. It seems like he's not doing that. Wherefore, hidest thou thy face and forgettest our affliction and oppression? Clearly, the psalmist here is in terror. For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Not because they deserve it, but for the mercy's sake. This is the darkest moment in their history and this cry comes from the remnant of God to redeem them for his mercy's sake. So that's the first three. Pretty heavy stuff. Heavy in just a devotional sense, yes, but also fits a profile dispensationally because we now get to verse 45, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is widely recognized by most commentators, independent of the first three things that we looked at, as standing on its own, and it seems to profile aspects of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verses 40 through for 42 to 44 are what's going on on the earth, what's going on in heaven at this time, and that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. To the chief musician about Shushanim, for the sons of Korah and Mishael, again instructional, a song of loves. Now, shenanah means really lilies, so it's a picture of Christ of the Messiah, the lily of the valley, or the rose of Sharon, if you will. A song of loves may well tie this to the song of songs. Solomon in his opera, if you will, deals with a, 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 a metaphor or analogy, an allegory, if you will, of the church as the bride, of the king. And that, seems to be even, that linkage seems to be even suggested here. This psalm clearly is occupied with the person of Christ, not a savior, but as the king and bridegroom. King and bridegroom. It opens up verse 1, My heart is indicting a good matter. The word indicting here really means boiling or bursting forth. And, And it's really God speaking. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made, touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Let me pause here to insert an expositional comment that I think is meaningful for some other reasons. In your English Bible, it it, it translates this term, ready writer, uh, the Hebrew term is ready writer, um, in the Septuagint, which was translated into Greek three centuries before Christ's ministry. That term, there's a Greek term there that is a technical term, in the Septuagint, which implies that the term they're using was in common usage in the street in those days. It's a technical term, but commonly used. In the third century before Christ, what is that term for a ready writer? The Hebrew is sophomore here, a quick-skilled scribe, but the Greek translation was oxagraphos, which is a synonym for tachygraphos, a shorthand writer. In the, in the Septuagint, three centuries before Christ's ministry, This term in the Greek was common language. What's my point? It has a great implication for all of us because one of the obligatory qualifications among professionals in the Greco-Roman world was that of a teregracchus or a shorthand writer. It was required skill in official posts to be able to write shorthand. Had to. They had no carbon paper, no Xerox machines. Everything had to be copied by hand again and so shorthand skills were critical. Matthew was a former customs official, would have had a working knowledge of tachygraphy, and thus may, would have been able to transcribe the Sermon on the Mount a verbatim, uh, just as a number of others in the New Testament did. Tertius and others were able to transcribe Paul's more verbose utterances. Paul dictated, and he had professional stenographers. Uh, they, they were written by hand. That's why they're called manuscripts, manu by hand. They're handwritten scripts. And uh, this is before printing, obviously. And they were, these guys were specific. Who wrote the book of Romans? It's a trick question. Yeah, Paul actually dictated it. The guy that wrote it was Tertius. So you, in, a, in, a, in a Bible uh, quiz, you can win that. by who wrote the book of Romans? It wasn't Paul. It was Tertius. He wrote it. Yeah. But anyway, 1 Corinthians, 2 1 Corinthians, Chinese, 2 Corinthians by Timothy, who also was the scribe for both Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. 2 Thessalonians was written by Silvanus, as was First Peter. When you contrast 1 Peter and 2 Peter, the Greek is very different. The 1 Peter is very professional Greek. The 2nd one is very rough. Peter did that himself. And uh, anyway, enough of this. But just a little background that emerges from understanding that translation of Ready Writer. Let's get back to the psalmist, to verse 2. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Already we, we have his beauty being extolled here. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. But this is all made touching what? The king. We're not talking as a savior here. We're focusing on his kingship and his bridegroomship, if I can put it that way. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. He is donning his sword. He is assuming his role, not as the kinsman redeemer, but as the avenger of blood. In Revelation 19, that introduces him on horseback, that's the chapter that also introduces you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in thy majesty, ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible or awesome things. Awe inspiring things might be a better translation. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people shall fall under thee. And may, the word arrows may surprise you, but Psalm 21, 77, 18, and 144 all deal with God's arrows, interestingly enough. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy, God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This may sound familiar to your ears because... It is quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And uh, it speaks of thy throne, O God. So this is coronation day that's in view here. Thy throne is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. This is uh, uh, the anointing of the bridegroom. In verse 7 here, it speaks of uh, 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 thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. Anointed one. What is the anointed one? The word is Messiah. It's a title. Just like Christ is the Greek version of that title. In Hebrews chapter 1, the entire first chapter of the book of Hebrews presents the Lord Jesus Christ in his exaltation, being the express image of God, far superior to angels, and seated at God's right hand. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 says, For under the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. A direct quote from Psalm 45. Continuing. Verse 8. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. Cassia is the outer bark of a very aromatic plant. It smells sort of like cinnamon. And uh, in John 19, we see these things used for embalming Christ. Is death. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Uphir. Who on earth is the queen? Where did this come from? Who is the queen? Right on. You got it there. Got a gold star, the man in the third row. You betcha. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thy ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Wow, that's a surprising thing. Forget thine own people and thy father's house. Your footnote there is Matthew 10. He says, think not that I come to send peace on earth. I come not to send peace, but a sword. Man's foes will be his own household. Daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against father-in-law, etc." cetera. No, it's a divisive thing. The church in the Old Testament is not mentioned by name, but only by allusion or type. Most of the brides in the Old Testament are pictures of Christ and his bride, like Eve, Rebecca, and Ruth, and so on. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and worship thou him. The daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee. This is, verse 11 and on is the preparation of the bride. The church is to be made beautiful. All sin will be removed. This is the future tense of salvation. The past tense of salvation is to remove you from the penalty of sin, we call it. That justification. The present tense of sin is to, is to, not the penalty of sin, the power of sin. Separate you from the power of sin. Sin has no authority to reign over you. You have authority over sin if you take it, but it has to be done moment by moment. But the future tense of salvation is glorification, and that's what we're seeing here. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. Her virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. Worship thou him. You're worshiping this king. This this isn't King David in the traditional sense. This is a king that is God. And she, the queen, the bride, shall be brought unto the king. This is indeed a presentation, as clear as you'll find it in the Old Testament, of what we call in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace, Instead of thy father shall be thy children whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. This speaks of the millennial kingdom. 9 out of 10, ten excuse me, 9 out of 10 churches 9 out of 10 churches in America do not acknowledge the millennium as a literal event. And that causes all kinds of uh uh, hermeneutical problems in terms of the Old Testament and New Testament if you don't take that seriously and uh, this, is, this this psalm is a glorious psalm and when it's put in the proper perspective it has great meaning for you and I today because we're on that threshold we're on that threshold okay so we've gone through uh, uh, these uh, uh, first five Married, supper of the Lamb, let's go down to the next group of three, the final group of three, verse, we'll go to Psalm 46, which deal with his kingdom. It's, it's going to deal with its arrival. The next one will be its range and then its center. Let's take Psalm 46. This is the first, the, these three are widely recognized as the kingdom psalms. Psalm 46, the arrival of the kingdom through tribulation. Psalm 47, the range of the kingdom. All the earth is going to be in view here. Not just Israel. All of the earth is ruled from there. And the center of the kingdom, of course, is Jerusalem or Zion, Psalm 48. Okay, Psalm 46, it has three elements. The sufficiency of God, first three verses. The security of God, in the next uh, four verses. And the supremacy of God, the last four verses. To the chief musician for the sons of Korah, there again it is to the sons of Korah, a song upon Alamoth. Alamoth evidently refers to the virgins, and we recognize that verse from Isaiah 7:14 and so forth. In this instance it speaks of the maiden's voices. This psalm is sort of reminiscent of the song of deliverance and victory that was sung by the children of Israel when they crossed the Red Sea, apparently led by Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron in Exodus 15 It has some parallels here. It ohms that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46 was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. Um, When he wrote the great Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he he very well may have had this psalm in mind. Verse 1 of this psalm is on his tombstone at, at Wittenberg.
1: You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit Institute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.